We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash lawless. Just go to Indeed.com slash lawless right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed com slash lawless. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. Hello, sunshine. I'm Alexi Lawless, and welcome to the State of the Union podcast, where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue colored glasses. This week, well, obviously, we'll be talking about the U.S. men's national team, which has finally returned to the World Cup. We've qualified for the World Cup as far as I'm concerned, and we'll be talking a whole lot about that and much more because there's all sorts of stuff going on over there. But first, joining me, oh, you know him. You love him, right? What? You you at least know him, right? Uh, My friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. Mossy, how are you on this beautiful Monday morning, March 28th in the year 2022? I wake up here in the wilds of Florida with the knowledge that my U.S. men's national team has qualified for the World Cup, my friend. Well, it might be beautiful where you are. It is raining in Los Angeles today, so not so beautiful in my neck of the woods. Uh, I am glad we are doing this podcast remotely because if I make a joke about your wife, you can't smack me in the face. <laughs> That's true. I can't. I can't do that. I am. Uh, yeah, I am down here uh, for a few days of R and R, and I'll be back for our Friday broadcast of the uh, World Cup draw from Qatar. Our good friend Stu is getting on a plane here in a matter of hours and heading off to Qatar. So he, he will be our man on the ground over there, and we'll be giving you uh, uh, updates, and we will know where the U.S. is uh, ultimately playing. Um, We got back from the game last night, and while we were all jacked up about the incredible result, something superseded everything in terms of the talk, and that was the Oscars, which I know is a big night for you. It used to be a big night for everybody. It used to be a big night for me, and I've, I've kind of completely forgotten about it, and it's become... Not, I don't want to say irrelevant, but I know you're a huge movie buff. And I also knew you may be the only person in the world that has seen each and every one of the uh, Best Picture uh, nominations. So you were very excited to see this. Obviously, Will Smith had other ideas when it comes to what is remembered from the 2022 uh, Oscars. Did you watch the Oscars? I caught part of it. Okay. All right. Um, for, before we before we get to uh, the uh, the Will Smith situation, um, do, I, I am right in saying that you see you saw all of the uh, was it twelve nominees or something ridiculous like ten that? Ten nominees, correct. I saw all ten. I left it late, but I did watch uh, Drive My Car finally a couple nights ago. So snuck snuck well, that in. There. It, it, in between all of the texts back and forth last night of. Uh, you know, holy shit, what did Will Smith just do? Uh, and holy shit, uh, we're going to the World Cup. <laughs> there was one that, that you said, uh, I think it was just like Coda. 
And for you, Mossy, because you feel like you discovered this early on and this is kind of near and dear to you, for that to win uh, was kind of like, if for for, uh, for longtime listeners, you'll remember Luis, who kind of felt that affinity and that closeness uh, to Parasite in that he kind of discovered it. It was this it was his band, if you will. And then it got and then it got big. And so he's pumping out his chest. Is that a, a good de- and a fair depiction uh, of your relationship to Coda? Yeah, it was a perfect night because I also enjoyed uh, Drive My Car and that one for Best International Film and then Coda won for Best Picture, which was my favorite of all the nominees. I made that clear to everybody I spoke to about the Oscars in, in the past uh, couple of weeks. So, um, yeah, I think the Oscars got it right this year. And yeah, it doesn't seem to be a lot of uh, disagreement on the Internet that I've seen. Everybody enjoyed that film and feels pretty good about it winning. So great. It was a feel good ending to the Oscars. Well, there was plenty of disagreement as to uh, Will Smith's uh, conduct, who who then evidently he went and won an Academy Award, right? For, uh, for, for King something? Richard. Yeah. And well-deserved. He, he was phenomenal in that role. Um, yeah. And then he gets up there and gives this dramatic speech about how God placed him here to protect his family or whatever. I, I could do without those kinds of speeches. I wish some actors could just get up there and be like, hey, thanks for giving me a, an award for doing my job. Well, appreciate it. And then walking off the stage it doesn't have to be this whole grandiose thing. And they all have their causes that they have to shine a light on. And I, I could do without all that. But uh, Masi, have you ever have you ever met actors? There's not a chance in hell that they're doing that. OK, I mean, this is their moment. They are very, very important. They're more important than anybody else out there. And this award show is not only a recognition of them, a recognition uh, of their craft. And they want to make sure that they uh, that they use it. I mean, look, the, the the debate continues and rages on about what Will Smith, uh, Will Smith did. I don't think anybody uh, condones it, but to see the acting community <laughs> feast upon itself and to see the uh, the inevitable um, hypocrisy and sanctimony <laughs> and, and back and forth and bitterness uh, and backstabbing and all that kind of stuff. I, I mean, it's it's better than, let's be honest, the majority of crap that Hollywood puts out there from a theatrical and, dr- and dramatic perspective. So uh, I am uh, I am all for it. Ultimately, how this this plays out, who knows? Uh, who knows? But it was it was for me the only thing that I that I even heard about or cared about when it came to the Oscars. And that says much more about the Oscars uh, in present day form, because there was a time when it was very, very, uh, very cool. Anything else you want to hit on that before we get into the uh, the real stuff? No, that's it. All right. Listen, we're burying the lead here. Uh, I, you know, I, I come on the air and, I, and I, obviously I'm telling you that we're qualifying for the World Cup. We are qualifying for the World Cup, despite Mossy's disclaimer uh, and despite our disclaimer. This was, for all intents and purposes, the final game we knew the U.S. needed to win. Not only did they win, but they won with uh, with a plum. They won uh, with with a. Uh, uh, a dominating performance in terms of the final score line being five to one. But I will say, and, and I said this on air yesterday, I don't think that this game went to plan from the start. And there was a moment in the first half where this could have gone sideways. And it's credit to Greg Berhalter and this team that they were they were flexible. I think both of us, Mossy, 
and, and talking to Greg Berhalter, and I think a lot of people felt that Panama was going to come out and be a little bit more cautious, absorb some pressure, be a little bit more defensive in this must-win game for them. And they took it to the U.S. and they had opportunity. They had possession. They pinned the USA uh, back at times, and the U.S. looked out of sorts for a period of there. And again, I, I think it I think it says a lot about the the preparation and the ability for this team to to pivot and to adjust to different type of circumstances. A team, by the way, that's still very young and inexperienced, that they were able to overcome it, find a way, I guess, back into the game and then kick on from there. That's my that's my general thoughts. I have plenty of other uh, other thoughts. But how do you think this one played out for you when you were watching this? Well, first off, the term I kept using on Thursday night was uh, the U.S. uh, would have effectively qualified if they came out of (laughs) Sunday with this massive goal difference advantage over Costa Rica. And I stand by that. I think that is the best way to describe the situation we're in. It's not official, but they've effectively qualified. I know U.S. fans are paranoid by what happened against Trinidad and Tobago and past visits to Costa Rica. So if it had been four goals or less, I could accept some angst right now. But I agree with you. Six goals is ridiculous. There is zero chance the U.S. is in the World Cup, particularly since it sounds like, and I say it sounds like because FIFA's rules are a bit fuzzy on this, but it sounds like uh, Costa Rica has nine players who, if they were booked against the U.S., would have to sit out that intercontinental playoff. So they're not even going to risk it uh, by playing those guys. So they view it as mission impossible. So it is over. what what could go wrong, Mossy? Right, famous uh, famous last words. All right, let's let's rewind it back though to the first game, uh, the Mexico game. I, you know, I think in 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 these two games, uh, and, and I'm and I'm talking about the the U.S. Mexico game in Azteca. I think Greg Berhalter comes out smelling even better than he was when he went into it. I was really impressed, and a, a certain part of me was proud that you know he he didn't try to get. Coy. He didn't try to get cute with the Mexico game. He played a very strong team, even played players like Tyler Adams that were on yellow cars and risked that. And the interesting and I guess the novel thing that came out of that game was there were a lot of people that were disappointed. And whether it was Greg Berhalter himself or the players or the fan base out there that were disappointed that we only got a point coming out of Azteca. And keep in mind, from a historic perspective, we would have taken this in previous cycles absolutely no problem and put it in the pocket. We'll take this one too. But the way in which, for example, years and years ago, when I was playing on the, U- uh, on the U.S. team, we got a point in Azteca and qualify. But we held on for dear life. We were down a man. We, you know, batting down the hatches and we just absorbed as much pressure as we possibly could. And we got away with the point there. We were proud of our performance there, but it looked nothing like what we saw in this game in terms of the U.S. having possession, taking it to uh, Mexico, and obviously not just having chances, but clear-cut chances. PFOC misses his sitter. Christian Pulisic misses his sitter. And I think you leave that game going, are we greedy? Are we being greedy now by expecting us to get a three points in that type of situation, albeit against a mediocre uh, uh, Mexico team, which I'll talk about later on in the pod, but still... Was that your feeling after that game against Mexico? Yeah. First off, Greg Berhalter got it completely right. And I had it wrong. Stu Holden had it wrong. People on that side of the debate had it wrong. It was 
the correct move to play his strongest lineup against Mexico. Uh, that point at the Azteca looms very large um, right now. And playing his strongest lineup, which enabled him to get that point, did not prevent them from doing what they had to do against Panama. Although I share your thoughts about that Panama game, which I'll get to in a second. Um, but yeah, so uh, that Mexico game, listen, when the U.S. beat Mexico 2-0 in November, um, I, I, I said then that if I was a Mexican watching that game, I would be mortified because if you go back to the Nations League victory and especially the Gold Cup uh, victory in which Mexico did have closer to a full strength team, but those two games still had elements of past U.S.-Mexico matchups in which Mexico played the slicker football. The U.S. had to rely on grit and toughness and set pieces. But that qualifying game in November felt differently. That was the first time I ever watched the U.S.-Mexico game and came away feeling like the U.S. was utterly superior technically. Their players were much more comfortable on the ball, and they played Mexico off the field that day. And this Thursday night was a continuation of that. Um, and so if I was a Mexican, I'd be very worried about where this rivalry is headed because we're now at a point where the U.S. is so superior talent-wise, we're even missing some of their best players in Weston McKinney, Sergio Desk, Brendan Aronson. They were able to go to the Azteca, take it to Mexico. We're clearly the better team on the front foot, created the best chances, and if not for some horrible finishing, would have come out with three points. So, yeah, we, we are reaching an interesting inflection point here as far as this rivalry. Um, so, yeah, I mean, apart from any qualifying implications in terms of the points and all that, uh, I thought the U.S. really made a statement that night that they are now far and away a superior team than Mexico. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, I'm going to talk a little bit more about Greg Berhalter in my in my one for the road. But uh, to your point, I, I think he got it right. I think there was also a, a, a huge example of, you know, my my adage form is fallacy when we look at PFOC. And it wasn't just that he missed a sitter. He just looked completely out of sorts and he com completely lost. Now, it doesn't mean that he can't be a, a, uh, a player on this team or contribute going forward. But again, I just it, it shows that you really have to guard against somebody having success or for that matter, failure in a certain circumstance and extrapolating it out or just saying that, OK, well, he or she is then going to go into the national team in this case. And we're going to see the exact same type of uh, type of results. And I know. We all kind of do that, especially when it comes to goal scoring and especially when it's this team that is in dire need of a number nine. Uh, I, I get it. But the search continues for somebody uh, for somebody up top. All right. So the team does well uh, down uh, down in Mexico. We get that point, And maybe we didn't even realize at that moment how important that point was going to be. I'm pretty sure that Greg Berhalter did re recognize uh, we we get out of there with, yes, some players who did get the yellow cards and therefore missed it, like DeAndre Yedlin uh, and Wea. Uh, but someone like Tyler Adams, who, I mean, he's played on a yellow card for now for a while. I got a lot of respect for for the way that he is playing. But we always knew that he was going to be almost that that secret weapon for this team. And he continues. Uh, he continues to be so. You get out of Mexico City, you take that point, and now you go back to this game. Uh, and this game that we always knew was going to be a must win game for the U.S. Um, all right. Initial thoughts after this Panama game. I agree with everything you said. I thought the U.S. actually came out very flat. And that first penalty was a godsend. It's, it was a correct call. Godoy committed two penalties on the same play, a foul and a handball. Um, and then even the Areola goal was somewhat against the run of play. So I thought 2-0 really flattered the U.S. at that point. Then they settled down, played better as the game wore on. But still, it, it was not a performance commensurate with the scoreline. Uh, 
but they did some good things and they they scored all those goals. And so absolutely you take it. But yeah, I agree with you. It wasn't like the greatest performance I've ever seen in my life, despite what the scoreline ended up being. Okay. And we had Zach Steffen on our set after the game, and he immediately said that they were not happy with their performance and they could certainly do you know, do better. And I think, you know, some were incredulous that that winning five to one in this type of situation, you would say that. But I think it I think it I think it touches upon some of the things that you were talking about in that while the scoreline was good, the overall performance, especially in those moments, and especially when it comes to Christian Pulisic, who I think the narrative out there is that this was a defining game, that this was when we finally saw the the version of Christian Pulisic that we have all been craving. And I want to push back a little bit uh, on that because... If he doesn't get those penalties and that first penalty, that's when he started to kick on. That's when it started to 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 change. Um, and, and look, you know, his third goal was wonderful and he was involved through the night. But as I've been saying before, this is at times a reluctant star. And this is a at times a star who we need to kickstart every once in a while. And thankfully, we have either individuals or, you know, by the luck of the soccer gods, moments that kickstart him. I am worried about what happens when that th- that moment or that that person isn't there to do that. And he has to do it himself and it doesn't come. And that burden that he has talked about and supposedly shed and for a lot of people seem to have shed before our eyes against uh, Panama what happens when he finds that he hasn't quite shed that and it is still there? Is he able to throw it off uh, going forward? Uh, let's So specifically about Christian Pulisic, uh, my question is to you, do you think that it was as definitive and th- that he deserves what we are giving and the way that we are coloring this game relative to him? No, it was Pulisic. It was a microcosm of what I just said about the game as a whole, where the, the numbers afterwards look a bit more impressive than what it actually was. I will say that third goal, though, was magnificent. Oh, what a touch. What a touch. I mean, when you think about Gio Reyna's run at the Azteca and then Pulisic's third goal, in a matter of days here, two different U.S. players produced moments that you could pl- plausibly evoke the names Diego Maradona and Dennis Bergkamp in, in mm-hmm. describing those plays. That's pretty good. Uh, yep. And that speaks to the talent that the U.S. has right now. And, and look, I, I, this is not me saying that I don't think Christian Pulisic is arguably the, the, you know, the biggest talent that we have ever had in history or that he's not going to be uh, not going to be important. I just thought it was, you know, f- Three goals is three goals, and that's and that's wonderful. And by the way, penalty kicks somebody has to step up and put them in, and he stepped up and buried and buried both of them. But you and I both, and I know I was sitting next to people where when that VAR sign came back, we we said thank you to the soccer gods and the VAR soccer gods because it was exactly what that team needed. Because to your point, it wasn't going well for the U.S. and the U.S. had to adjust. And I think they did adjust. And then they found that that wonderful 10 minutes where it just came fast and furious and we were smiled upon and and we did we did work and we went back. Somebody turned to me in the middle of the uh uh, somebody turned to me in the middle of the game and said, you know, for all of our talk of um, evolving and progress and identity and being more progressive in the way that we play, when it all came down to it, we were much more American and we were that 
team that kind of absorbs some pressure and counter and set pieces and all that kind of stuff that we've talked about in the game. Now, I I think that's a, a, an oversimplification of this team, but there is an element of that well, because of the way that Panama set up and because of a way that I think this team ultimately, whether they want to admit it or not, they kind of like that uh, at times. It doesn't mean they can't play out of the back. It doesn't mean they can't do uh, beautiful things. But there was a an Americanness at times to this performance. But I do think the Mexico game on Thursday night reflected some of the evolution. That was not your grandfather's U.S. team going into Azteca and holding on. So... We saw both sides of that coin over this window so far. Greg Berhalter and the players are going to say all the right things. There's still work to be done. And there is, you know, this is where I think perspective is in order. And for a team that's very young and inexperienced, sometimes you don't have that perspective. You know, we're talking about what? Two players that were involved in the greatest failure in American soccer history in 2017 of not qualifying for the 2018 World Cup. And one of them, obviously, is Christian Pulisic. I think the other one's uh, Kellen Acosta at this point with this group of uh, this group of players. So while everything they do is informed by that and understandably so, very few of them went through it and felt it um, and but but I think they all recognize that this was their opportunity to set things right. But but I but I said it last night and I'll say it again. Greg Berhalter was not hired to get this team to the World Cup. All right. That has been done many, many times before. It's not a feat or an accomplishment. Doesn't mean it's not worthy of celebration and congratulations uh, for him because it didn't happen the last cycle. And in order to do what you're ultimately going to be judged on, you still have to get to the World Cup. But. You know, I, I I was saying that this at times this team has brought a tear to my eye and it has because it's made me incredibly proud to watch the team in the way that they played. But I shed no tears of joy last night. I'm happy, but there is a much bigger prize out there and there is a much bigger challenge coming for this team. And I'm excited to see them you know, get back to a World Cup and see what kind of damage they uh, they can do. And the judgment and the, um, uh, you know, the level of, of criticism and critique is going to be relative to the uh, to, to the World Cup. And all the players said the right things. They're going to go down to Costa Rica. Whatever's going to happen is going to happen down in Costa Rica. It's going to be good or bad, but it doesn't matter whether it's good or bad. They're still going to qualify. And then Friday, we're going to find out where they are, go, uh, where they are going to go. Um, any, any other particular players you want to mention in terms of their performances? One last thought on this U.S. team. Uh, you mentioned PFOC struggling. Uh, I've been thinking a lot lately, and this is a dilemma that uh, lots of other national teams and club teams are dealing with around the world. If no out-and-out center forward steps up in the next eight months or so, I've been thinking a lot about playing without uh, a center forward. Now, Jesus Ferreira has seemingly emerged as the go-to false nine option. Mm -hmm. But even when Ferreira is not available, I I was talking about this with Stu on Thursday night. Would it then be playing Gio Reyna in kind of a Phil Foden-esque sort of false nine role or even Timothy Way in that role? What would be uh, the plan there? If, you, if you're not going to play without an out-and-out center forward or Jesus Ferreira, is there is there another guy that you think could sort of adapt to that role? And and if it's just about getting all your best attacking players on the field and not forcing an, an out-of-form center forward into the lineup. Yeah, I mean, 
it, this is still the challenge and the struggle for this team. And, you know, Jesus Ferreira, I think, has done well. I'm, I'm still not convinced that he is the answer, but what you're talking about may happen. Gio Reyna, I, I worry about because I don't think he is as comfortable and I guess reliable the way I look at it with his back to goal, goal like that. I want him getting the ball in, in, in better positions. And as a false nine, it doesn't mean that he can't come back and do that, uh, do that type of uh, stuff. But, you know, again, this is, this is about being competitive with the elites out there. And at some point we are going to get up against teams that are better than us that we have to adjust, that certainly aren't going to fear us. Uh, they're going to have more possession than us. We're going to have to uh, defend uh, much uh, much more. But we're going to have to have somebody up there that can at least pose problems for the opposition. And that false nine, I think that works well when you know you're going to have possession and you do have possession on a continual basis. And that's that's just not always going to be the case, even for this team, as much as they as much as they want to do it uh, as we go forward. So but it's still a dilemma and uh, it still has not been solved. And I'm not sure in the next seven months or whatever that that's something that's going to uh, that's something that's ultimately going to uh, to be solved. Uh, Okay, so when when all is said and done. You think that Costa Rica, because there's still all sorts of permutations in terms of what could happen with with Canada and Mexico and the U.S. and uh, no, not with Canada, with uh, with Costa Rica, the U.S. and uh, and Mexico even. So when this is all said and done, you think U.S., Mexico and Canada automatics and Costa Rica goes and plays uh, New Zealand and uh, Qatar. Or the Solomon Islands. Don't oh, sorry, disrespect or the, Solomon. the Solomon Sorry, Islands. excuse me. Excuse uh, me. Too. Well, in the second segment, I'll, I'll whip through all the other regions. But yes, uh, what you said is exactly what's going to happen. And and a couple of CONCACAF thoughts, if I may, and I'll start on Costa Rica. Um, the reason why I was advocating um, the U.S. resting players against Mexico is, I must confess, I did not think Costa Rica was going to win both these games. Uh, home to Canada and away to El Salvador. I thought they would draw one of them. And so the U.S. would be in a position in which even if they lost at the Azteca by merely beating Panama at home, they would clinch a direct World Cup berth. Uh, so that's uh, that was part of my calculation, the way I'd sort of map things out. But lo and behold, Costa Rica won both games. And I have to say, they deserve a lot of credit here. I know we view things through a U.S. lens. So when we've mentioned Costa Rica in the last uh, 24 hours, it's been in this sort of negative sense of, oh, they have to win by six goals. But they really... Reading the Costa Rican newspapers this morning, there's a celebratory mode because the mere fact that they clinched a top four finish with a round to spare is a nice achievement for them. And they'll take their chances against New Zealand or Solomon Islands in that one-off playoff game in June in Qatar. Uh, When you think about the fact that this team had six points after the first seven match days and were pretty much left for dead, and now they've ripped off 16 points in the last six match days, five victories and one draw. Uh, Panama, meanwhile, had 11 points after uh, seven match days and have gained only uh, seven in the last six match days. So there was a nine-point swing between those teams. Over the last six match days, Costa Rica gained 16, Panama gained seven. So it was impressive the way Costa Rica were able to blow past Panama here and snatch what looks like is going to be that fourth spot and go to that playoff. So yeah, they'll take their chances on Wednesday night 
against the U.S., but they, they kind of feel like they're playing with house money already because it's not do or die. They have another uh, chance to qualify for the World Cup uh, by winning that playoff game. So, yeah, hats off to Costa Rica. They, 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 they You know, we watched that team at the Gold Cup and we thought they were terrible. And they're this horrible. Is a team that they're are horrible. getting old and yeah. and, they start, and, and and look, they started the octagonal horrible, too. Yeah, yeah. And they made it, they made a coaching change and they and they brought in some new players and, uh, you know, credit to credit to them for finding it. I mean, they're going to be they're going to go to the World Cup because I think they're going to win that fourth, uh, you know, that 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 playoff uh, against whoever it ends up being. And we're going to have four teams from CONCACAF at the World Cup, which is good for uh, uh, for CONCACAF. Speaking of uh, teams that are going to the World Cup and are absolutely assured of going to the World Cup, our friends from the Great White North Canada, let's finish off the segment here by, uh, you know, paying homage and, and uh, um, you know, really, uh, you know, giving them their due because they came into this octagonal and they owned it. They owned it from start to finish in the way that they played, in the points that they got. And I think most importantly, in the respect um, and the acknowledgement of how good this team is. Now, it doesn't mean that they can't go to the World Cup and lose every single group game and bomb out. Uh, but this is a fun Canada team. It's been uh, 36 years. Uh, is that right? Yeah, 36 years since um, since Canada went to a World Cup. I remember it back in 1986. I've told you the story before. I was a 16-year-old, uh, and I was sitting in the, in the Holiday Inn lobby, watching the 1986 World Cup from Mexico, watching Canada, because we didn't have a U.S. team. And growing up in Michigan, Canada was my team in that World Cup. I was there playing in a youth tournament, the Pikes Peak Invitational uh, in Colorado Springs. And we would set that 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 uh, that that TV up in the lobby. And I watched Diego Maradona and I watched my Canada team. And I I I I can't believe it. It's taken this long for them to get back, but they did it in style. And so congratulations to them uh, going back. Anything you want to say about them, my friend? It's worth noting uh, in the uh, original uh, format that CONCACAF had devised and that was approved Mm -hmm. by FIFA for World Cup qualifying in this cycle, Canada would not have been able to have clinched a direct berth. Uh, The way they were going to do it is they were going to take the six highest ranked CONCACAF teams according to the June 2020 rankings. And Canada was not in the top six at that point. They were going to go play hexagonal. And then teams seven through 35 were going to play in a separate qualifying campaign, which was going to spit out one team. And then the top three in the hexagonal were going to qualify directly. The fourth place team in the hexagonal would then face that one team from the other qualifying path in a playoff. And the winner of that playoff would be the CONCACAF representative in the intercontinental playoffs. And once they announced that, there was all this criticism that it was exclusionary. Um, and people brought up a team like Canada not having a, a path to a direct birth is unfair. Then COVID happens and they announce, hey, we're going to have to come up with a new format under the guise of we have to make it simpler and more streamlined because we lost some dates and we might lose other dates. And then they came up with this new format that I still maintain is not any simpler than the one they had originally in terms of the number of matches and the travel, but they used that as an excuse to address the other issue and came up with a format where now every team had a, had a path to a direct berth. So they took the top five teams, they qualified directly for the octagonal, and then teams six through 35 uh, engaged in a different qualifying phase that would then spit out three teams that would join the other five in the octagonal. And Canada went down that path. They navigated multiple rounds of qualifying just to get into the octagonal. And once they did, they've done what they've done. And here we are. So it's kind of interesting the way everything turned out. 
It is. We we live in interesting times, my friend, and they produce interesting <laughs> scenarios on and off the soccer field. Uh, okay, let's uh, let's take a quick break, and when we come back, there's all sorts of other qualifying that's going on as the uh, you know the musical chairs uh, that music starts to stop, and those chairs get filled up for the World Cup in Qatar. Don't go anywhere. All right, we're back. Mossy, uh, let's take a trip around uh, UEFA qualifying. Should we do that? Uh, yes, and uh, we should start with the disaster. Pour one out, buddy. Pour the one disastro, out. <laughs> yeah, that uh, <laughs> took place with Italy. So they are out of the World Cup, uh, second straight World Cup they were miss out on. Uh, they don't even get to that final against Portugal that we were all projecting. They lose at home in the semifinals of their bracket to North Macedonia, a goal in stoppage time. Uh, one nil North Macedonia advances. Uh, unbelievable. I have lots of thoughts on this, but I'll let you go first. Non posso credere. <laughs> I, I mean, it's, uh, it, it uh, how do, how do I say this? <laughs> um, so when, when Italy didn't go to the last world cup, there was all of this juxtaposition with the U S and the, the angst and the, the anger that we were feeling over here, um, with what was happening in Italy, where, of course they were angry and of course they were embarrassed, but there was also this sense of a needed moment and a needed reboot for Italy and, you know, a step back to go two steps forward and all that. Now, look, Italy can afford to not go to the, it's not something they they want to do, but they can, as a culture that is steeped and based in the game, they can afford to not go to a World Cup. And they use the time to regroup so much so that a few years later, albeit in an age of COVID and, you know, things were changing around, they become the European champions. And you think, okay, well, this is a time when now they they kick on from there and then we're really going to see ultimately this um, you know, what was the, uh, the, the German, the, uh, Das Reboot or whatever. We're going to see, you know, uh, whatever the Italian version of that is. And now they come back bigger and stronger. And obviously it, it didn't happen. And we knew that either Portugal or Italy, two of these big teams were not going to make it through that. It was Italy is not necessarily a surprise because they certainly could have gone on and, and maybe lost to Portugal if, or whoever, but that they do that they don't go through in a game against uh, North Macedonia. I actually sent out a map on a text chain that I was at just because I knew people were thinking about it when this happened, just showing exactly where North Macedonia uh, is uh, out there. That in and of itself is 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 shocking this will live long in the memories i don't think that they expected and or needed this as yet another reboot a reboot but there will be recriminations and examinations again of what happened how did this how did this happen was it just simply you know the dios of of calcio looking down and saying this is not going to happen uh or is there something s- systemic that is going on in italian international soccer and with the federation or with the players that this is a problem or is it just the european qualifying process yeah before we launch into the what's wrong with italian football discussion it must be said as you mentioned that over the course of this cycle they won the euros which is almost like a second world cup they set an international record with a 37 match unbeaten run and they played some lovely stuff under roberto mancini and even in this qualifying campaign they drew switzerland twice Jorginho missed penalties in each of those games had he made one of those 
Italy would have qualified directly, and we'd probably be touting them today as one of the five or six favorites to win the World Cup. Um, but as Derek Ray, I think, has correctly mentioned on Twitter the last few days, the margin in Europe is very small. Yes, it's European qualifying is more conducive to these sparkling campaigns because you play so many minnows. But at the same time, it also means that one loss can doom you, while other regions, it's more of a slog, but you can lose a few games and still qualify. So that's true. They got bitten by that. They, they, they lost one game out of nine they played in qualifying, and, and lo and behold, they're out of the World Cup. Um, but I will say, to the extent that there is something wrong with Italian football that merits some examination, um, for all the talk over the years about Italy being ultra-defensive and Catenaccio and all that, some of the most brilliant attacking players I've ever seen in my life are Italian, from Roberto Baggio to Alessandro Del Piero to Francesco Totti to Gianfranco Zola. And that type of player is missing from Italian football right now. I'm sorry, but every time Italy has gone into a big match the last few years, I look at the lineup. Defenders look good. Midfielders, okay, maybe there's not an Andrea Pirlo pulling the strings, but still Marco Verratti, Nico Barella, Jorginho, excellent players. And then you get to those attacking positions and you say, oh, good players, but nobody that's going to keep defenders awake at night. All right. Well, you know, we'll see you next time, Italy, maybe. <laughs> Who knows? You want to go to uh, your friends, Portugal? Uh, so Portugal, it didn't, wasn't easy for them either. Uh, they get past Turkey, but that game was 2-1, 80-something minute, and Turkey missed a penalty to make it 2-2, which would have taken it to extra time. And then Portugal tack on uh, the clincher and stoppage time. Incidentally, two of their three goals in that game were scored by Brazilian-born players, Otávio and Mateus Nunes. Um, Italy also uh, had several Brazilian-born players in their squad, which I always derive some satisfaction from the fact that these other countries have to steal Brazilian players to uh, fill out their squads. Uh, but nevertheless, Portugal move on and they will now host North Macedonia. We're taping this on a Monday. That game uh, is Tuesday. So the day this podcast drops and yeah, I, I fully expect Portugal to win. I don't think lightning will strike twice for North Macedonia, but you never know. I mean, you agree Ronaldo and company uh, will be yeah. off to the world. Ronaldo and company are going to go. I mean, uh, although, um, you know, I just finished watching that documentary, King Otto. So things can happen when it comes to Portugal playing against minnows, if you will. It's about the uh, Otto Rehagel, the uh, Greek coach. Uh, it's actually a really cool documentary. It's actually out this week. You can uh, you can check it out. But um, so things can happen. Uh, it'd be interesting. But I don't think it's going to happen when it comes to this. I think that Cristiano is going to get another World Cup. And your beloved Portugal, with all of the talent that you've been telling us about for the last couple of years, are going to get the opportunity to shine at the uh, the ultimate stage. Elsewhere in Europe, uh, Sweden beat the Czech Republic 1-0 in extra time. Robin Quezon with the only goal. Uh, so it's going to be Poland against Sweden in the final of that bracket. Uh, in Poland, which I have an issue with, uh, the draw determined that the Poland-Russia winner would host the final in that bracket. But once Russia got expelled from the World Cup and Poland got a buy into the final, they should have switched that to even it out a little bit. So now Poland only has to win one home game to get to the World Cup. They should have at least made it where the Sweden-Czech Republic winner would host the final in that bracket. But nevertheless, it's going to be Poland. So we'll see Poland-Sweden battling for a World Cup berth. And then the only game that was played in the other bracket was Wales-Austria because the Ukraine-Scotland semifinal was postponed until June. Wales beat Austria 2-1. We have reached peak absurdity with this Gareth Bale situation because uh, the Madrid media treats him like a villain. Uh, to hear them tell it, he was supposed to start that Clasico against Barcelona and claim to be injured when he wasn't just because he didn't want to risk actually getting injured and missing these Wales game. And and then he goes off and then after claiming to be injured a day or two later, he shows up in Wales practice looking happy and fine. And then he goes out and has the performance that he did, scores two 
fantastic goals. So he's been getting crushed in the Madrid media and they should send him to the reserves or rescind his contract and he's a disgrace. Meanwhile, the rest of the world, particularly the British media, looks at it completely differently. They think Bale is the victim here and it's a disgrace the way Real Madrid has treated him. And they look at this performance as evidence that Real Madrid are getting this all wrong and that Ancelotti should be playing him more. And it just seems like two sets of people who view a situation completely differently and are just kind of talking around each other and nobody makes any effort to understand the other one's point of view. And so we continue on this whole bizarre bail club versus country uh, dichotomy here. I mean, look, it, it's nuts. Uh, I tried to go and read some of the articles, especially that article uh, from uh, from Spain that evidently he's a he's a, a famous type of writer. And, and you know, he compared bail to, you know, this parasite. And it was all this like, <laughs> poetic and 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 actually probably you know beautiful prose but obviously crushing this player for for what he is and what he's done and what he isn't and all that uh, all that kind of stuff i mean nobody's going to cry for for bail he's he's going to be uh, he's going to be just fine and it was also interesting to hear when you really look at what he has done and what he has to his name in terms of accomplishments in terms of goals in terms of cups in terms of games played all that kind of stuff i mean he's going to go down as 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 one of the greats when it when it comes to it, I know there you know history will be written or rewritten relative to uh, relative to him. All of that is not to say that that what is happening is is necessarily unfair, but he's still a good player and he's still providing us moments of uh, moments of magic. Uh, to your point, you know the the goal he scored, the free kick. I mean, it was just it, it was it was wonderful to see. Uh, anything else Europe wise? I know uh, there's a feel good story there with uh, Christian Eriksen too. Yeah, he scored in for Denmark in a friendly against the Netherlands. So that's great news. I will say, though, some of these friendlies that were played in Europe over the last few days did have FIFA rankings and thus seating pots implications. And Denmark ended up losing that game, which was a damaging result for them. Uh, from what I read, it ended any chance of them ending up in pot one. So, yes, great news for Christian Eriksen, but not great news for Denmark overall. Uh, but still, as you mentioned, very nice to see him scoring. Obviously, he's been playing well for Brentford. So, uh, so far, so good with him and his comeback from that terrible episode. All right. Should we uh, take it over to uh, South America and uh, come? Yes. So the big development there is the four direct births have been claimed. Brazil and Argentina had qualified long ago and Ecuador and Uruguay joined them on the last match day. Uh, the uh, Uruguay game was quite controversial. Uh, they beat Peru 1-0 at home to cross the finish line uh, in stoppage time of that game. Uh, former Flamengo left back Miguel Trauco uh, crossed a ball into the Uruguay box. The Uruguay goalkeeper Sergio Roche grabbed it, but the momentum carried him into his own goal. He stuck the ball out to try to keep it from crossing the line. Uh, Peru felt like it did cross the line. VAR reviewed it and determined that it didn't. Based on the angles I've seen, I don't think it crossed the line completely. So I, I think ultimately the referee got that right. But it was it was quite the moment. Peru are still furious about it. They've launched a complaint to FIFA. There, people are looking at different angles and trying to determine who's right, who's wrong. Um, they, they've they've complained about the referee, who's this Brazilian Daronku. But you'll notice nobody got in his face too much when that moment happened because he's this like professional bodybuilder who looks like the incredible Hulk. So uh, <laughs> it's very easy to launch a complaint, you know, for miles away. But in the moment, uh, there wasn't too much uh, of anybody getting in his face because he's an intimidating character. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, that result 
coupled with Chile's 4-0 defeat to Brazil at the Maracanã meant that Uruguay qualified and Ecuador did as well, despite losing 3-1 to Paraguay. So those two are off to the World Cup. So all that's left to decide in Comunabol is that intercontinental playoff spot. Three teams still alive for it. Peru's on 21 points, Colombia 20, Chile 19. Peru in the driver's seat. They host Paraguay in this last match day. If they win, they get it. If they don't win, it opens the door for most likely Colombia, who are away to Venezuela. I expect them to win that game. But in the event Peru and Colombia both don't win, that would open the door for Chile, who hosts Uruguay. If they were to win, then they would get it. So three teams battling for that one playoff spot. Is that intercontinental uh, playoff spot also played in uh, Qatar? Correct. One game? Okay. okay. Um, all right. So that takes us to Asia, uh, where we mm-hmm. also know the four direct qualifiers there. It's Iran, South Korea, Japan, and Saudi Arabia. And then in Asia, there's going to be a playoff, uh, and the winner of that playoff will then represent Asia in the intercontinental playoff against the fifth place finisher in South America. And we already know Australia will be in that Asian playoff. We still don't know who the other team will be. So that's really all that's left to settle here on in these Tuesday games. Who will face Australia in that Asian playoff to then determine who goes to the intercontinental playoff to play a South American team? Um and then in Oceania, which uh, impacts CONCACAF, as we talked about in the opening segment, it's down. The, we've reached the final of their qualifying tournament. It's New Zealand against Solomon Islands on Wednesday. Uh, the winner goes to the Intercontinental Playoff to take face the fourth place finisher in CONCACAF, which will most likely be Costa Rica. So, and, and New Zealand overwhelming favorite. So, most likely we're looking at a New Zealand Costa Rica playoff in in Qatar. Uh, and finally, Africa. We've had the first legs of those five two legged ties. Um, just rolling through the scores here, uh, DR Congo, Morocco was 1-1 in Kinshasa. Now leg two is in Casablanca. Uh, Ghana, Nigeria was 0-0. Um, Tunisia in great shape. They won 1-0 away to Mali. Same true for Algeria. They won 1-0 away to Cameroon. And then Egypt beat Senegal 1-0 at home. So these second legs are all on Tuesday and the away goals rule is in effect. So we'll know on Tuesday which five teams will represent Africa at the World Cup. Yeah, that's a that's a simple one. There's there's five games, and uh, when all is said and done, the five teams uh, go through. Um, you, you mentioned uh, you know the, these playoff types of spots, and I think I had mentioned a, a previous pod that I had talked to Victor Montaliani, and he felt that going forward, obviously with the expanded uh, World Cups, so when it comes to something like Concacaf, that not only are they going to get the you know the uh, the possible three, possible six teams in, but there's also going to be a couple of playoff spots going on. So these playoff spots uh, or play-in games, whatever you want to call them, um, aren't going away. And talk about drama uh, in terms of one game. So there's a lot of stuff to be uh, watching this week uh, as these uh, spots get filled up for that uh, for that FIFA draw, which happens again on Friday. And you can check it out on FS1. What time is that uh, draw, Mossy? Oh, you caught me. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I know it's in the morning. For it's in the morning in Los Angeles where we are, not in the morning uh, where where Stu is over there in Qatar. But you can find it. You'll you'll, you'll figure it out. And we'll have uh, coverage of the actual event, analysis beforehand, and obviously analysis uh, after when uh, when all of those balls come out of the uh, the bulls and we find out what's going on. Uh, anything more in terms of um, uh, World Cup qualifying? That's it. All right. Again, that draw is Friday, April 1st on FS1. Uh, It's in the morning out there on the West Coast. And uh, you should check it out because it's going to be fun. And that's when we that's when that's when it really gets real, if you will. Uh, All right. We'll take another quick break. When we come back, it's time for Ask Alexi. Don't go anywhere. (laughs) 
All right, we're back and it's time for Ask Alexi. You know, you send us in those questions either on the uh, social media platforms out there and use that hashtag Ask Alexi or you send us in a question on our hotline, which is 657-549-2297. I think we got a bunch of qu- uh, Twitter questions this week, Mossy, right? Well, you in last week's pod said, I don't think there's been a weaker Mexico team in the time I've been following U.S. soccer. So at our Greenia, Greenha replied with this question. Would that be the case if Chicharito and Vela were playing? Crazy to me that they aren't called in. Uh, Would it be the case? Uh, I do think that both of those players can fundamentally change their team. Carlos Vela much more so than Chicharito, to be quite honest with you. I mean, if I have to pick one of those players to have on my team, it's going to be Carlos Vela. I think he can... I think he can do more things well and therefore is more valuable than a Chicharito. And look, I'm not saying that the Chicharito isn't world class and I'm not saying that Mexico can't use him. But between those two and if both of them are on their team, yeah, I think that Mexico is better. Is it still I still think it's a weak team. I still think because it's not just a weak team in terms of the talent that they have. I think it's weak mentally. Um, I think the that they are doubting themselves. Uh, I think it's long in the tooth and I'm really interested to see if and when Tata Martino qualifies this team, if he does what Bruce Arena alleged he was going to do had they qualified back in 2017 for 18, which was bring in a whole bunch of new players. One, I'm not sure if Tata Martino feels that that is prudent. Two, even if he does, I'm not sure that there is all of that talent waiting in the wings to populate the the national team in the next in the next seven months. So this might be as good as it gets. And having said all of that, it would not surprise me still in the least if Mexico got it together, qualified for the World Cup, show up in Qatar. And ultimately, Tata Martino is the architect that takes them not just to the fifth game, but gets them uh, the win in that fifth game, because that's the bonkers nature of the sport that we know and love when it comes to what uh, what Mexico is. Um, I do. I, I, I think this is to reiterate the weakest Mexico team that I have seen in in my lifetime. There's probably somebody else out there going to say, yeah, but what about during this month of uh, insert your year there? OK, I'm just saying. Um, and that's not to take away the point that the U.S. has gotten or the or the results that they have gotten now. But this is a weak team. This is also a team that is playing in a weakened environment that is or was Azteca. Uh, and you put all of those different things together and there's a reason why they are struggling. And it's a it's a crisis of confidence when it comes to this team, because it's not as if they aren't talented. But Tata Martino, Tata Martino has his hands full trying to figure out what's going on. Uh, assessment uh, of, of Mexico from uh, from your perspective, Masi? You know, it's funny when we were figuring out the U.S. Costa Rica scenarios and needing to win by six goals. And I, I always kept inserting into the conversations that presumes Mexico is going to handle their business and as their game last night got into the second half and it was still nil-nil against Honduras, I started to feel like, guys, we need to start contemplating the possibility here that this Mexico team might be broken and that they're going to screw this up and there might be the team that ends up in that intercontinental playoff. Now, as it turns out, they got a goal from Edson Alvarez. They beat Honduras 1-0. But still, that is cutting it really close against an awful Honduras team that has nothing to play for. Um, and so now they have closed things out home to El Salvador. 
Uh, I mean, do I think they get at least a point from that game? Sure. So, but, you know, in thinking about how many goals Costa Rica needs, it wouldn't, it would be less than six if Mexico were to lose that game. Let's put it that way, which uh, the way Mexico are playing right now, I wouldn't put anything past them because it has really been so uninspired. It's unbelievable. I was talking to Mariano Trujillo the other night and he was trying to rationalize. I don't know. They're doing what they got to do. They're getting the points. But my God, everything is so labored with them. And, and it's it's a team that, that it's not without talent. I mean, you look at that lineup and you've got Chucky Lozano and, and Tecatito Corona on the wings and Raul Jimenez, who I know is still trying to re- recapture his pre-injury form, but still a guy who was a prolific striker in the Premier League not long ago and that midfield and Edson Alvarez and Hector Herrera. So uh, to your point, it could be that once they get out of qualifying, they'll show up at the World Cup, a different team and go on a good run. It's entirely possible. But this qualifying campaign has been a profound disappointment to me. I thought Tata might be the coach to get him to the next level, and, and he hasn't done that at all. Um, and as to the Vela and Chicharito, um, both complicated situations. In Vela's case, we know he's turned down a zillion calls over the years, including to major tournaments. And even in this cycle, he turned down uh, Tata Martino. So, you know, you get to a point where you're going to have to keep begging a guy to play for, for his country. Uh, I can't totally blame Mexico if they've gotten to a point with Vela where they've moved on. And keep in mind, he's been injured for a lot of the last two years, so mm-hmm. it was kind of a moot point. Um, in Chicharito's case, um, from what you read, now, I, you know, I, I wasn't there. I don't want to spread, like, rumors, but uh, from from what you read, uh, he had a disciplinary issue in 2019 where he snuck women into the hotel or whatnot. And that's what soured his relationship with Tata and why Tata started leaving him out. Uh, now he's he's playing well for the Galaxy. He's healthy. And there's talk that the Mexican Federation is going to pressure Tata into calling him up, even though Tata is still not totally on board with it. So it's going to be interesting to follow that situation. Um, I agree that Raul Jimenez has the highest ceiling of any Mexican center forward. So I, I, I don't blame Tata for still viewing him as the starter and just trying to do everything he can over the next seven months to help Jimenez rediscover his best form. But beyond that, Guys like Rogelio Funes Mori and Henry Martin, to me, it's really tough to make a case that those are better options than Chicharito. The, the one guy to look at, and, and Mariano Trio spoke to me about him the other night, is this kid, Santi Jimenez, who plays for Cruz Azul. They're very high on him. So he's somebody that could emerge. Uh, and, you know, we'll keep an eye on him in uh, CCL. I expect Cruz Azul to beat Pumas in that semifinal, and then it would be Cruz Azul against either Seattle or NYCFC in the final. So we'd get a close look at the Santi Jimenez kid. He's a, he's somebody that's in the mix as well. But so, yeah, I, I think Vela, that ship has sailed, but the Chicharito one is fascinating to keep an eye on the next few months. Yeah, I mean, look, as, as much as Mexico are our rivals, um, I, I take no joy in a, any type of demise. And and like like you said, they are... They are uninspiring, and um, there is an apathy, unfortunately, right now when it comes to to this team. And I don't know. I, I mean, given the history of the Mexican Federation of changing coaches, I mean, talk about a long leash when it comes to Tata Martino. I mean, the, you know, the the headlines even after the game against the U.S. were Tata out. Um, but I, I, you know, I think, and I think I said this last week. Tata Martino was was hired 
for the World Cup to get them to the World Cup. Yes. But at the World Cup to get them over that hump. And he still might get that opportunity. And I still think that there is a that that long leash is relative to the quality that they believe he has in that ultimate moment. And when all is said and done, Tata Martino might have the last laugh. And that would be uh, that would be interesting. And he would be drinking that champagne that he likes to talk about all the time. Um, All right. Next question, my friend. What do we got? Um, our Fox Sports colleague, RJ oh. Young, um, he asks, Joe Maxmore is a legend in Tulsa, my hometown. Do you have a story you can tell us about him? Joe Maxmore, uh, a U.S. men's national team uh, legend, um, played in MLS, played over in Europe. Uh, I came up with Joe Maxmore in the collegiate system. And I, uh, you know, he was playing at UCLA. I was playing at Rutgers at the time. Uh, And then we grew up, we played in the Olympics together. And then we played on the national team together. I have never met a more competitive human being than Joe Max Moore. He was, and I I think everybody out there probably knows someone like this. He, He is and was throughout his career wired differently in that it wasn't just about being competitive and wanting to win. It's that he couldn't fathom losing in anything. And it didn't matter whether it was cards or playing in a World Cup game or playing 5v2 or playing soccer tennis uh, or a sprint to the corner or, you know, in your car. It didn't matter. He always wanted to win. That's a good quality if you can harness it correctly. At times it can be problematic, but ultimately I wanted him on my team because not only did he want to win, but more often than not, because of that streak in him, he won. Um, I'll tell you the story, uh, and I I may have told it over the years here, but it's worth repeating when it comes to Joe Max Moore. Uh, Bora Milutinovic, our coach of the 1994 World Cup team, had to make final cuts and cut it down to, at that point, it's now 23 players on a team, but at that point it was 22 players on the team. And it was coming down to the end and the last week of training. And for some of us, including Joe Max Moore, we had been with this team for a number of years, training every day for the opportunity to be on that team. And there were only 22 places and there were more than 22 players. So you knew cuts were happening. And Bora Milutinovic told me this story years later. He said, Joe Max Moore made the World Cup team because on the last day before I had to ultimately decide, and he was on you know, he, he was on the edge as to whether he was going to be part of that team or not. I watched this player play a game of soccer tennis and I saw him and I saw a player that wanted to win so badly that I said to myself, my team needs somebody like that. And Joe Max wasn't necessarily at that point going to be a starter for the team, but he saw in him a spirit and a willingness to do whatever it takes to win and a competitive uh, vein that was obvious to all. And he says on that day, that soccer, that game of soccer tennis enabled me to say, this is a guy that's going to the World Cup. So it's amazing what what hangs in the balance in everything uh, that you do. But yeah, he is a, uh, uh, he may be a legend when it comes to Tulsa, but inevitably when I get the question about people that I've played with, I always reference him as the most competitive player that I ever played with. All right, what else we got? And then we'll end on a fun one. Okay. Um, at Fen214, uh, you know, you've made your thoughts on wings clear on this mm-hmm. podcast, and then you reiterated it the other night uh, during our watch party for the U.S.-Mexico game. 
so at Fen214 reacted to that by saying, Alexi is going to be on Hot Ones when the World Cup approaches, isn't he? Uh, Hot Ones is apparently a TV show. Luis sent us a link where uh, two guys sit around a table eating spicy wings. So he, this person thinks you're going to end up on that show. So the, the whole wings take has now taken on a whole life of its own in that, you know, I'm getting heckled now when I'm out in public and I'm also getting people that are coming up. And here's what's the interesting thing about the wings take is that they are very secretly giving me the handshake of agreement and even people that don't necessarily agree with me on other things. And this is the interesting phenomenon when it comes to this this wings take. And for those that, that maybe don't know or haven't haven't listened um, again, I think that they are a ridiculous food. Uh, they are a conduit for sauce. I think they are worth much more. Um, they, they take much more effort, effort than they are worth. The return on investment is is part of the ridiculousness uh, when it comes to it. And that they have become a staple um, and an incredibly popular food for humans to consume. It just boggles my mind. Um, and you can go back and you can see it's well documented, uh, my thoughts. What has been interesting to me is that while those that are wings aficionados and lovers will will do the heckling, again, people will either quietly and some even silently find ways to agree with me. And I can see the wheels in their mind turning when they say, I don't agree with this person on anything, and yet I agree with them. But there's almost a sense of shame out there for people in expressing this. And I think what we as a society and culture, a wings society and culture, what we have done is we have shamed an entire segment out there into thinking that they will be uh, they will be canceled and or shamed if they express this what a lot of people refer to as a crazy belief and idea that I have so publicly expressed. So if I am able to give people the uh, the opportunity and the strength to come out and express this, that is that is my gift to you out there. As for going on this show, I'm, I'm up for going on a show. If people want to spend their money and or time either watching me or working to change my mind, who am I to say no? So uh, yeah, I have no problem going on hot ones or anything else. And again, part of my, you know, part of my, uh, my problem with wings is that I don't like to be not just uncomfortable, but in pain when I'm actually eating food. While it might be incredibly hilarious to people watching it, and if you haven't ever watched Rob Stone uh, out there eating hot peppers, yes, I guess it is fun watching people eat really, really hot food, especially those that aren't used to it like myself. So who knows? Any, I'm open for anything, including hot ones. What else we got, Mossy? That is it. That is it. Uh, thank you for sending in your questions uh, this week, whether it has to do with soccer or wings. Keep them coming. Keep them coming out there. And uh, like I said, whether it's uh, with the uh, the Twitter hashtag uh, Ask Alexi or any of the social media platforms out there, or of course, our State of the Union podcast hotline, which again is 657-549-2297. That's 657-549-2297. All right, we're coming to the, coming to the end of the show. When we come back, I will give you my one for the road. Don't go anywhere. All right, we are back. Uh, before I get into my one for the road, um, Mossy, I want to thank you 
for our live show, our live digital show that we did last week for all the help that you gave us and participating. And once again, I, I hope you are sensing and feeling the love that the public has for you out there. Um, when I, I've told you before, I'll go on the road, including in uh, Orlando, where I was last night, people coming up to me, asking me, where's Mossy? Or say hello to Mossy, or we love Mossy. It's all about Mossy when I'm out there. And we were in uh, O'Brien's over there in Santa Monica for the US-Mexico game for our live digital show. And thank you to everybody that came out. Apologies too to some folks out there because we didn't realize that people were going to come out. If we were to do it over again, and we are going to do it again at some point, we're going to make it much more interactive and much more of a show than it was. But the way it was set up, it was the first time we were doing it. And so, you know, uh, like I said, apologies, we're learning. But um, Mossy was great. Mossy was great in terms of the information he provided and the entertainment that he provided, if anybody did uh, watch that. So thank you, Mossy, for uh, for doing that. Did you have a good time? I did, yeah. Yeah, it was a good uh, place. I very tasty food at O'Brien's. I, I I'm not gonna lie. I was staring at that plate of wings in front of you all night, and, <laughs> and the fact that you weren't even touching it was driving me crazy. It was awesome. All right, listen. Uh, I'm gonna end it up here with my uh, my one for the road, and it has to do with Greg Berhalter. And I've talked with about Greg Berhalter over the last couple of. Uh, years and he is the head coach of the uh, U.S. men's national team. There is this this notion and this sentiment uh, out there that somehow the American soccer community, whatever that is and whatever your definition is, has become toxic or there's a toxicity. Uh, and, and, and that for a lot of people is new in terms of the experience of what American soccer is. And it can apply to coaches, including Greg Berhalter. It can apply to the, the full national team or an individual team or, or actually individual, uh, individual players. Uh, when it, when it comes to, I, I, first off, I would push back on that notion. I think there's just a lot more people now that are interested in the game, a lot more people that have come into the soccer tent, the American soccer tent, and the more the merrier and the more voices you get, I think the better for the sport, but the more voices that you get, the more diversity of thought and the diverse voices in terms of what people are saying, positive uh, and negative. And that's that's not a bad thing. I will I will fight for your rights and for the freedom um, and I will encourage people to have that voice, whether I agree with it or not. And I don't feel that that is toxic. And I'm not saying that people aren't saying mean things. I'm not saying that people aren't saying things that I vehemently disagree with, um, nor that you should go about saying something that's on purpose mean. But mean things are said, and mean things are said at times in, in soccer. And you may or may not disagree with it, but ultimately I think that that's good for the sport. As it relates to, to, to Greg Berhalter, Greg Berhalter over the years, like any national team coach or any coach for that matter in sports, has taken plenty of crap. Uh, some of it I think has been fair. Some of it probably hasn't been fair, but I'm not, gonna, I'm not ready to call it toxic. Um, when it comes to the things that have been uh, that have been said. However, when it comes to what Greg Berhalter has done, and he's qualified for this team uh, for the World Cup, if you look at his body of work, and we talked a little bit earlier on this show, Mossy, about how this team now plays, even his most staunch uh, critic out there, I think at the very least has to give him credit for cultivating this group, uh, this incredible group of talent, uh, 
which yes, is a Tata Martino champagne problem, but you still have to be able to get them to perform and to decide ultimately who you're calling in and then decide what that 11 is. If you look at his winning percentage, if you look at the titles that he has won, if you look at who he has beaten, and if you look at where he is right now relative to qualifying, I think you'd be hard pressed to find anybody that wouldn't call it a success. There are those that continue, as I said, to look at Greg Berhalter and say that somebody else out there would do better with what he has. Fair enough. I think that that at times is a is a fair criticism. But if you are going to say that Greg Berhalter should not be the U.S. men's national team coach because he's not good enough for the players that we have, and somebody else in that position would do better with this group. Fine, that is your argument. But in order for that to happen, there needs to be a change. And in order for a change to happen, you have to want him to fail. And as soon as you say that, everybody says, oh, no, 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 I don't want him to fail. Well, you actually do. If you truly believe that this team is better off with somebody else, then obviously you would want that change to happen. And for that change to happen, he has to fail. And what I want people to do is to be honest about that. And I've been there before. We've all been there before, whether it's in sports or other avenues of life, where in order for things to happen, in order for you to have what you want, others need to fail. It is it is human, but it is ultimately the truth. And that type of honesty, I think, is important as we are going about this process of growing and getting bigger and having more voices and at times be being, you know, accused of toxicity or whatever the word ultimately ends up being. If you are going to be critical, if you are going to be negative, then at least be honest about that. And, you know, in the past, like I said, I've been that been in that position as a as a human being. Now, somebody's going to counter that argument with saying, well, you know, I can want our president to do well, even though I don't like him or her and I want somebody else in there. But again, if you believe that somebody else can do a better job in that position, then the only way that that happens is by failure, by failure of that individual or by failure of whatever that individual is in charge of. And you wanting that to happen doesn't make you a bad person. It actually makes you an honest human being. And I just I, when 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 people are being critical and look, I'm as critical as anybody out, out there and I stand by my, my critiques. I stand by my criticism. I stand by when I am being negative about something. I try to balance it and I try to look at things in in different lights. And I tr and I recognize that if it bleeds, it leads. I recognize that in this day and age of clicks and social media and everything, people want that criticism. And that's what the eyeballs are, the the Oscar for the feel-good story uh, isn't going to be the story. It's going to be the guy that walked up on stage and hit a fellow actor. <laughs> so I, I understand that. But sometimes you also have to guard against just being negative to be negative and just being critical uh, to be critical. But if you do, if you do go there, um, be honest about that assessment and be honest about that, that, that criticism and uh, and that negativity. And I will respect you. I will respect you for uh, for doing that. Regardless, Greg Berhalter 
has qualified this team for the World Cup. Again, it's only the first check in a box, but an important box. And congratulations to him uh, and congratulations to this team as they look to Friday and that draw to find out where they are going to be playing and who they are going to be playing. And it feels good, my friends. It feels good to be back at the Men's World Cup because I remember where I was on that night back in 2017. And it was a low place for a guy that's been around soccer for a long time. It was a low place. And the feeling of failure and doom and anger and sadness. It took a long time to dissipate. And Greg Berhalter, at least for me, and maybe for others out there, I, I would I would think for others out there, you know, the chant is, um, I believe that we will win. Okay, but it's not blind faith. And I think Greg Berhalter has made me believe in this team again. And that in and of itself is a feat. And um, he deserves credit for that. And then we move on and we assess him in the next big test, which is going to be the World Cup. And thank God we're going to it. Anything, Mossy, before we go? One last thing. I do want to highlight Luis Aguilar's performance today because he is violently ill. This was his Michael Jordan flu game. Uh, Luis somehow gutted it out and was still able to produce this podcast. Uh, absolutely heroic. I mean, I know that word gets tossed around a lot, but I think it is appropriate. Um so hats off to Luis. Absolutely. Absolutely. So thank you, Luis, for, uh, you know, grinning and bearing it and gutting through this like uh, like Michael Jordan. And thank you for everybody for uh, for tuning in. And uh, I am, like I said, I am in Florida and I'm coming to you remotely as is uh, Mossy. Uh, next week, it looks like we'll be back in Los Angeles. Looks like we'll be back in the studio and we'll obviously uh, talk about the draw and we'll have a whole lot to talk about uh next week uh draw again friday on fs1 we got some mls action on the weekend on uh on fs1 so all sorts of stuff when it comes to uh uh soccer uh going on so check it out anything we go before we go mossy that's it all right thank you so much for tuning in please download please rate please review please do all the different things that you do out there we thank you so much for listening to the state of the union we'll be back same time same place next week here on the state of the union until then and as always size the day 